Hi, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff I'm Never Told You. A few weeks ago, we did an episode all around sexism at the gym. And we've heard from so many of you since then about your experiences and tips, and I can't wait to share some of those in future episodes. And in that episode, we mentioned we would rerun a classic episode all about the gym's fascinating history. This is that episode. So get out your neon-colored ankle warmers, your Jane Fonda workout tapes, and enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since it is January, mm-hmm. what better time than to talk about gyms, working out, exercising? Because the, uh, the one thing, I feel like I've mentioned this before uh, in the podcast, that A, I, I take yoga regularly, and B, the worst time to take yoga at my studio is in January. Yep. Because heavens to Betsy, it is flooded with people. Yeah, I noticed that uh, when I lived in Augusta, I was a member of the Y, like the whole time I lived there. Because I liked it. It was a low-key gym. It mm-hmm. wasn't like meatheads all the time or whatever. Um, and I noticed that every year, like in January, I would come in and not be able to get a freaking machine. Yeah. At all. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll just wait until February and come back. And it's great that people want to exercise. One of those common New Year's resolutions, of course, is to get in shape, lose some weight. And so people tend to go through these early January fitness crazes by Valentine's Day. Who knows if we're still exercising regularly or not. Uh, But uh, I was wondering when I was thinking about, like, the fact that we have to, that we go to other buildings outside of our home Mm -hmm. to exercise and we pay rent essentially in spaces to exercise. I wanted to know when did Americans in particular start doing this? When did we start having to work out? Because wouldn't that be nice? Don't you remember, like, when I, whenever I go vintage clothing shopping, I'm amazed by, like, how, how tiny <laughs> so many of the women's clothes are and how none of them were going to the gym. Yeah, what was uh, what was going on? I guess they were walking. They were walking a lot more. Walking places. Yeah, Kristen and I were just talking about how when I was in England for a couple months over a summer one year, even though I was eating nothing but like fish and chips and drinking beer, I walked everywhere, every day, all the time. And so I actually lost weight and my legs looked fabulous. <laughs> Um, yeah, and if we go way, way back in time, I thought this was pretty funny. We found um, a timeline of exercise and fitness from a couple of exercise scientists at the University of New Mexico, and they mark the point where things really start going down for humans <laughs> at uh, 10,000 to 8,000 BC during the Neolithic Agricultural Revolution. So we were, we've been screwed from the get-go. Folks. Once we started, or once we stopped being hunter-gatherer nomads, we we were just totally screwed. Yeah, they said that agricultural developments meant that we had a more sedentary lifestyle. And to that, I say, like, are you are you kidding me? Like, people were still walking, right? They still had to like run from saber-toothed tigers, right? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, and then moving up on the timeline, I mean, there are a lot of um, not, you know, like exercise tips. There aren't ancient Jane Fonda videos, but I wish. Y- there are. 
<laughs> chiseled into stone, yes. little leotard. But I mean, there are ancient attitudes and in, in cultures about physical activity and how it benefited the body and the spirit. You know, Confucius encouraged physical activity. Yoga was developed by Hindu priests. And then we get up to ancient Greece, which is really what a lot of people cite when they talk about the history of exercise, gymnasiums, bodybuilding, wrestling, all that stuff. Because the ancient Greeks and Romans really had an appreciation for a beautiful body and considered fitness and health to be just as important as mental health. Mm -hmm. And a fun etymology tidbit here. Uh, Gymnasium comes from the the Greek root gymnos, which means naked because, as we know, a lot of male Greeks in the ancient world appreciated nude working out, which seems dangerous if you're a guy. Yeah. I'm just saying. Things swinging around. I mean, wh- what happens when, yeah, I. you know what? We'll just leave it there. Yeah, we'll, we will. <laughs> but there is also an ancient Greek saying of exercise for the body. You have music for the soul. I, I can get on board with that. Ancient Greeks. And then uh, moving way forward to the Renaissance. I know we're taking leaps and bounds through history, but... We have other things to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, But during the Renaissance, for instance, uh, there was this resurgence of appreciation for, you know, ancient Greek culture and the the high minds of the day linked fitness, physical fitness, to intelligence, which is a good thing. I mean, like, that that is true. There is a major, like, brain-body connection. Absolutely. And then, if I may take another giant leap forward and go to the post-industrial revolution era in our history. So, you know, the industrial revolution happens. All of a sudden you have like uh, assembly lines and things like that. And people are sitting a lot. I'm just going to make broad strokes here. <laughs> yeah. And um, before before we keep moving forward, speaking of post-industrial revolution, mm-hmm. there was a group of uh, 19th century German political refugees who sparked something in the U.S. called the Turnvarian Movement. I hope mm-hmm. I'm saying that correctly. And uh, they were pro-gymnastics and calisthenics, and their goal was to get physical fitness in every American school. So they were like a gang of gymnasts? Yeah, a gang of a German, German gymnasts. <laughs> but they sparked this huge movement, and uh, this should be something that uh, our podcast pals, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, maybe could take a closer look at. And they were also um, responsible for popularizing bowling in the United States. Thank you. I know. Germans. Yeah, so that's going on in the 19th century and then really crank things forward to the 20th century. Yeah. And what's going on? Well, so I mentioned that we started sitting a lot, right? Yeah. And that that honestly like without going off on a tangent, it's probably our sitting that's going to kill us. Yeah. We're sitting down as we record this podcast. I know we Caroline. should really be on exercise balls. <laughs> we should be, <laughs> or just, or you know, doing bicep curls as we talk. Yeah, we'd be, we'd be ripped. I'm doing squats right now <laughs> in my mind. Um, so in the 1950s and 60s, diseases that were spurred by basically sitting around and not having that daily physical activity started to really emerge. Things like cardiovascular disease, cancer, and type 2 diabetes became much more prevalent during this period. And so that led a lot of physicians and, you know, health, health-minded individuals in general to think, what can we do about all of this, all of these health issues? Yeah, I feel like we are living in a time when we are constantly being inundated with... Uh, 
pretty frightening, almost scare tactic-like messages about how, uh, you know, we are all gaining too much weight, we are not moving enough, our health, our collective health is just going down the tubes. But really, in the 1950s, it w- there was a massive health panic going on as well, and it was related to the development of the minimum muscular fitness tests in children by doctors Hans Kraus and Ruth Hirschland, who were measuring the muscular strength and flexibility among American kids, and they also compared that to kids in Austria, Italy, and Switzerland. Yeah, it turns out that a lot more American kids were failing at least one of the tests. And in response, no, parents didn't get angry. Children didn't go outside and play. No, Eisenhower, the president, created the Council on Youth Fitness and the Citizens Advisory Committee on the Fitness of American Youth. And it's also during this time that several health and fitness groups got their start, such as the American Health Association, the American Medical Association, and the American College of Sports Medicine. So a lot of people were like, we We've got to do something. Our kids are soft. Well, and the fascinating thing about this is that a lot of the that fire was fanned. Those flames were fanned. The the fitness flames. I'll stop with these <laughs> this horrible fire analogy. Alliteration. Um, a lot of it was undergirded though by Cold War fears. Essentially, saying too, it was it was more focused too on on the fitness of. The boys. I mean, we're coming out of World War II and massive militarization um, into the Cold War era. And John F. Kennedy wrote an article for Sports Illustrated in December of 1960 called The Soft American, in which he bemoans the fact that uh, essentially he's saying that, that the up-and-coming American youth are becoming far too soft either mentally, morally, or physically, and uh, that it's going to be the downfall of the United States, that the Soviet Union at the time was becoming strong and muscular and bench-pressing and doing one-armed push-ups while the United States was just... All of the kids were just watching TV. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's going on and on and talking about, uh, you know, this is terrible. Our kids are soft. You know, a huge amount of kids are failing these muscular strength and flexibility tests where the European kids are, you know, bouncing off walls and stuff. So why is it a big deal? And he finally he finally says it. There's that little aha moment where he says, if we waste and neglect this resource, if we allow it to dwindle and grow soft— then we will destroy much of our ability to meet the great and vital challenges which confront our people. So there you go. Armed conflict has been a major part of our culture leading up to now. And while he says it's also vital, you know, health and fitness are vital to activities of peace, basically it's like, people, we've got to be ready in case the commies come. But he's also like, I mean, we, we don't I mean, we don't have to fight, you know, we need muscular strength for the activities of peace as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and then he also makes this great prediction um, by the 1970s, according to many economists, the man who works with his hands will be almost extinct. So a lot of a lot of fear about the rising technology, about the threats of the Cold War. I'm sure there were still lots of post-World War II jitters going on. And so this is the initial spur of uh, working out and organized exercise in gyms in the United States. 
Well, one person who didn't wait around for JFK to call everybody fat was Jack LaLanne, who, I mean, he's like the most famous, outside of Arnold Schwarzenegger in my mind, he's like the most famous fitness guy yeah. ever. He uh, He's basically referred to as the founder of the modern fitness movement, and he died in 2011 at the age of 96, I believe, as like the, the fittest man in existence. And what inspired LaLanne was a fitness talk he heard at age 15, and he immediately goes out and starts working out with weights. And eventually, at age 21 in 1936, he opens a fitness studio with a gym, juice bar, and health food store. And I can tell you, people thought he was absolutely crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1936, doctors thought that this guy who was drinking all this juice and and pumping all this iron uh, thought that he would be setting himself up for heart attacks and loss of sex drive. Yeah, watch out for those weights. Yeah. But yeah, he also, like, he really popularized the whole TV fitness thing. Uh, The Jack LaLanne Show debuted in 1951 in San Francisco and went nationwide a couple years later. And part of his thing was to draw kids in and then encourage them to get their parents involved in getting moving. Well, and that's very significant, too, because the rise of TV and and kids being drawn toward more sedentary leisure activities. One thing, too, that JFK talks about in uh, the Soft American article in Sports Illustrated was about how high school parking lots were filled with cars because kids weren't walking to school anymore. And on the weekends, they were just sitting in front of the boob tube instead of running around. And so it's pretty significant that Jacqueline uh, started to spread his message through that Medium, And it's those boomer children that were largely the targets of that first wave of, oh, no, everyone's getting soft, who were the, 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 one, the adults in the 1970s and 80s who really started the like nationalizing the, the private fitness industry as well, who made working out a thing. Yeah. And we'll I, I, we'll backtrack a little bit, but I do want to, speaking of baby boomers, this quote from Time Magazine in 1982 says that most of the 76 million boomers are finished with the drug culture and alternative therapies. Instead, many of them have seized on fitness, ergo older Americans jog in an attempt not to be pushed aside by an army of fresh, unlined faces. That sounds terrifying. Well, it sounds like today. You know, in terms of, I mean, even back then, like we talked today about plastic surgery and how Mm -hmm. everyone wants to keep looking young. Well, the same was going on in 1982. And and that quote was coming from uh, a paper that we found called The Rise of the Modern Fitness Industry by Mark Stern that was published in Business and Economic History in 2008. And he cites a statistic that only 24% of Americans reported exercising regularly in 1960. So working out, not so much of a thing in 1960, but then by 1987, according to a Gallup poll, that number jumped to 69%. And uh, he attributes that, that leap to a crisis in both health and identity. Yeah, because, you know, similarly to what we were talking about earlier with health, uh, heart disease, I mean, and, and things like that from, you know, sitting. Um, It finally occurred to people that, hey, like maybe we should get our heart pumping and our lungs expanding to prevent 
some of these diseases. And a big proponent of that was Dr. Ken Cooper, who was the one I did not know before we started this research. He was the one who coined the term aerobics in his 1968 book of the same name. And he is a big pioneer of using exercise as a preventive measure in health. And yeah, he he focused more on philosophy over treatment. Well, and it's also fascinating how there is this corporate angle to fitness as well um, that you can tie, we could have a whole huge conversation on more of the masculinity angle of this, but uh, it started to be reported on in in magazines like Forbes and Fortune in the late 70s and 80s where the thing to do if you wanted to be a powerful guy, especially in business, then you worked out. Like you were going to be physically fit in order to be, uh, to have the appearance, the correct appearance of a CEO. Yeah. Say. And I didn't realize this. I thought the whole in-house gym thing was more of a modern thing, you know, at, at like Google offices and stuff, you mm-hmm. know, fancy, fancy corporate offices that have giant gyms installed. But yeah, this really started to get underway in the late 70s, early 80s. Because fitness was really thought to increase productivity, reduce absenteeism, and enable recruitment and attention, not to mention uh, improve morale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've got this switch because, uh, you know, during the, going back to Victorian times, dieting became a thing which was linked more toward morality. There's always been this uh, kind of misguided link between um, your physical appearance and the state of your your inward appearance. And you have this major shift 100 years later where it, we just embrace the vanity of it. It's all mm-hmm. about the body image, how you look on the outside. Uh, gyms that start springing up become new... Uh, uh, dating hot spots. Why do you think all of those leotards were so high cut? <laughs> all the, the the fashion, the fitness fashion. Olivia um, Newton-John. Oh, man. Jane Fonda. Uh, yeah, in 1978, New York Magazine wrote uh, that there is a new class that defies elitism in an entirely different manner, and that manner is exercising and working out. Because at the time, uh, working out was a thing that was done mostly by more highly educated wealthier white people as a, as a fancy schmancy kind of thing to do. So let's talk about the actual, uh, the gyms themselves and the rise of things beyond just going to like a, a local YMCA, but actual private fitness clubs and gyms. Yeah, there there definitely are still gyms that cater to specific activities like boxing or martial arts, things like that. But they're greatly outnumbered by this modern, clean, sparkling fitness club idea. And fitness clubs got their start way back in the day, although membership was very low because it was seen as kind of a fancy pants thing, right? So back in 1940, uh, this guy Vic Tanney began, began his first club in Santa Monica ended up opening dozens more clubs in the 50s and 60s, and he wanted these locations to be seen as, quote, temples of luxury and respectability, which was really a departure from the whole, like, dudes are going to go in there and grunt and sweat and pump iron and, you know, get their muscles all big and stuff. So this whole idea that you go in there and you're pampered and you have all of these fancy machines and stuff was a, was a new development. 
Yeah, and during the 1970s, there were two major types of fitness clubs that emerged. Uh, ones that were geared toward racket sports that were essentially offshoots of country clubs. Um, and then you had the much more common types of gyms that we think of these days, which were those storefront gyms that focused on low-cost, high-volume service. And uh, I thought it was really interesting how uh, Mark Stern points out that there were major problems that arose in the gym industry, a lot of complaints that were filed with the Federal Trade Commission because a lot of people were opening all of these gyms wanting to capitalize on this new emphasis on exercise and working out. Um, But they would do it by essentially like hassling people into signing contracts with sketchy membership deals and perhaps unsanitary locker rooms. Yeah, all sorts of shady dealings going on because uh, gyms are not are not an easy business to get into, it turns out. Yeah, well, they would, I mean, they would oversell, basically. They would get all of these members signed up, counting on the fact that people would drop out. Mm-hmm. Either it would be too expensive for them or they just didn't want the hassle anymore or things like that. So, but it, it I can see why the gym business is so attractive because... Uh, as far as private fitness clubs go, um, in 1978, there were only about 3,000 of these private clubs. That has grown uh, to 20,000 uh, 11 years ago in 2002. That's a crazy jump. Yeah. As of uh, 2006, there are an estimated 42.7 million gym members in the United States. And one of the big reasons that uh, gyms have become so popular is women. Essentially, exercise and working out being changed from, uh, you know, more of just uh, guys going in and pumping iron to it being something that women do as well. And this is uh, something that really takes off in the 1970s and the 80s. People like Jane Fonda leading the way. And when we talk about the rise of women in gyms and women in fitness, uh, it starts off as something that is propelled by more feminist ideology of saying, hey, you know what, we can, we need to go in there, we need to be physically strong as well, we can work out alongside men, no big deal. But then it becomes this double-edged sword where it's like, oh, hey, in order to be attractive, I need to be working out five days a week, and oh, God. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, we, you know, we could go on and on about that forever. And, and that kind of also goes back to some of the things we talked about in our dieting feminism issue, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, you really have this this rise in the strong tone body aesthetic, like I'm going to look all muscly and shiny and tan, as opposed to, you know, the flower children, the waifs of the 60s and 70s. So now you had this whole new aesthetic to worry about, whereas maybe women had gotten interested in fitness because I want to be healthy or, you know, I want to whatever, go to the gym. Now it's like, oh, okay, well, if I go to the gym, it means I have to look like Jane Fonda. <laughs> Shoot. That would be awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, like, that would be fun to, like, as a costume thing. I don't actually (laughs) want to have to deal with those high-cut leotards. Um, And beyond that, too, uh, there have been some interesting conversations around gendered uh, gyms. What I mean by that are women's only health spas and gyms that have since opened up, which initially... 
Like in the 1970s, when when these uh, the Women's World Health Spa opened in New England, uh, there were places like the Lucille Roberts Health Spa that opened in New York and other places that were attributed to even more feminism. It's saying, hey, this is part of women's lib. We're getting our own spaces to work out and to exercise. Yeah. And more recently, that's actually drawn a lot of controversy, um, sort of sort of unexpectedly, I would think, because it seems like these women-only gyms are a positive thing. You know, they provide a quote-unquote safe space where you can go and not feel intimidated, not worry about who's staring at you and all that stuff. But 13 years ago, according to an article on CNN, there were actually a couple of lawsuits claiming that these clubs illegally discriminated against men. And perhaps also surprisingly, um, members of the Massachusetts branch of NOW, which is the National Organization for Women, lobbied hard to prevent legislation that prohibited single-sex clubs over the concern that it could actually open the door to resegregating golf clubs and other venues. Yeah, because uh, need, need we remind listeners that it was only in 2012 that the Augusta National Golf Club accepted its first female members. All the way back in 2012. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. So it, it is kind of interesting to see how, you know, you've got the, the arguments on, on both sides of that because obviously, like, women's only gyms are very popular. Just take Curves, for example. Uh, in 1992, the first Curves women-only gym opens. By 95, they're franchising. By 2002, there are 9,000 hmm. locations. So obviously, there is um, there there's a, a desire for that. And if you Google gender and gym culture, you will get all sorts of headlines such as Mars and Venus at the gym, pink and blue at the gym, you know, because it is a very gendered space. Because if you think about it, you walk in, the free weights area, dudes, the ellipticals and the aerobics rooms, gals. Yep. And obviously, I'm not saying that there's no crossing, but by and large, those are in, in papers that have looked at the gendered space of the gym environment. It's usually divided like that. And I remember going to the gym in college and it it wasn't my favorite thing to do. Not because I didn't like exercising, but because there it was a charged atmosphere mm-hmm. because you are not wearing as many clothes as you might in class. You are sweating. There you know, there's conversation going on. I would go in the morning mm-hmm. just to avoid the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was also funny to see how some other women would obviously dress up a little bit. Oh, my God. The makeup at the gym. Lots of makeup at the gym. Kristen and I, we should remind you, went to the same college and the same gym. And, oh, my good goodness, women stop yes. with the, a full eye makeup at the gym. Like, how do you? I would sweat one drop and all that stuff would just slide off my face and I'd break out into 100 pimples. Yeah. I don't, but then again, I, I was actually working out. And that was back, well, that was back in college when I actually, I felt like I had time. I would go, I had this great block of time during the day where I would go in the middle of classes and really nobody was there because it was around lunchtime. Mm-hmm. I dreaded going at night. Ooh, like yeah. after all the classes were over, after dinner around like seven or eight, it was crazy town. And I would never, I would not have dreamed of setting foot in the in the free weights area. No. Because it was, it was swarming with, yeah. with dudes. I would go in the mornings when it was me and the professors mm-hmm. and I could wear my sweats and no big deal. Um, and uh, there was a paper that we found on gender 
at the gym by Thomas Johansson from uh, University of Gothenburg in Sweden. 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 And essentially, I mean, he, he says a lot of the same things in this paper that we have in terms of uh, some women feeling discomfort because there is a, typically a more uh, male-dominated atmosphere. Yeah. In the gym. We have our gendered spaces, like Kristen was talking about, how, I mean, even if you're a woman who uses the free weights, you still kind of know what we're talking about. Like, even people, men who do aerobics, women who use the free weights, you can still tell that there's that weird, you get weird looks, and, and people are like, why is that man in an aerobics class? Or, right. What's that woman doing in our free weight space? Yeah, because you it's it's crossing those gendered lines a little bit. Like, he talks about how, uh, you know, the construct of masculinity and the male physical ideal that is much more muscular-driven compared to more of the female idea that's more about toning and shaping. There's even some, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but uh, there was a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about how women can't really build, like get super muscular. You know, he, it's more about shaping yeah. and molding. And maybe the I think body. there was also an attitude of maybe they shouldn't. Right. And because I think it was Reebok that didn't sponsor a particular women's bodybuilding competition because they didn't like the look of some of those women. They Mm -hmm. were way too masculine and scary looking for Reebok to handle. Um, But female bodybuilding is a relatively recent phenomenon when you take all of exercising history into account. And it really does freak people out. Uh, In this paper that Thomas Johansson did, most of the men that he interviewed expressed one of two things. Either disgust or respect mixed with disgust when it comes to female bodybuilders. Yeah. Because, again, I think it, it, it's it's because of that being a transgressive, in a way, of, of crossing those, those gendered lines. Now, one thing that Johansson also brings up about gym culture is homophobia. Uh, he talks about how the male sphere is characterized by a more distant relationship between the instructors and the population of the gym. Uh, how, you know, it's more likely to, you're more likely to see a personal trainer with a female client rather than a male client. But I'm... I'm going to go ahead and say from a personal experience, I don't, I think that's becoming less and less of a case, of the case, especially when you think about gay gym culture. There's even a book that I found uh, by Eric Alvarez, who is a personal trainer in San Francisco, who essentially did like a giant uh, ethnographical study of gay gym culture. And he wrote a book about it called Muscle Boys gay gym culture, um, which he breaks down the different types of guys at uh, gay gyms or gay men at gyms um, and talks about how uh, there is a strong intersection between gyms and gay culture because of the pursuit of the ideal body image and also social interaction. It has been like a major place for gay men to meet each other. And I'm not just talking about things like, you know, stereotypes like cruising in the locker rooms, um, but actually like meeting, interacting, you're working out together. Um, And he claims, Alvarez does, that gay men and the gym culture have been largely responsible for creating the overall, both uh, gay, straight, whatever, male physical ideal. Yeah. And it challenges that bigoted stereotype of gay men as being weak and limp-wristed. So working out is important to 
to a lot of gay men. Yeah. Whereas I hate talking to people at the gym. I do too. Please, 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 please leave me alone. That's why I just run by myself. Well, when when I was at the Augusta gym, um, I was left alone for the most part. I mean, it was definitely taboo to like try to talk to other people really because you didn't want to come off as a creep, whatever gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember this like elderly man, you know, he was wearing the the headphones that have the radio built in and he's wearing yeah. his red, white and blue sweatband. Kind of like a wannabe Jack LaLanne. <laughs> yeah. But he like, he wouldn't stop talking to me. And I did the thing where I, you know, frustratedly uh, took out my headphones and was like, what, what, I can't, What? And he was just trying to ask me, like, what's your name? How often do you come to the gym? And when I told him how much I came to the gym, he was like, you should really think about coming more. I was like, I'm going to knock you off of the elliptical. But I actually have, okay, so that's like, haha, funny, whatever, old man talking to you. I do have a really horrific gym experience story about talking to someone and trainers. I actually, I was uh, the last gym that I belonged to was friends with a trainer. He was a great guy. He helped me a lot. You know, really nice guy. But... I went with another trainer one time, and he was really creepy. Crossed get- crossed a lot of boundaries. Called me at home. Um, email started emailing me, and I had to finally say, like, you've got to stop. You know, I I it, ew. Like gym culture can be scary. Yeah, I, I had an experience with a personal trainer where it was it was too close for comfort, and I had to say, see you. Yeah, me coming to this. the gym is not me saying I would like to uh, hang out. Yeah. It was also, like, just on a final side note, too, it, it's in, incredible. Like, w- when when the, the personal trainer was being too forward with me mid-workout, like, when I, when I exercise, I flush Yeah, red, I turn purple. <laughs> I excessively sweat. I, you know, that's half the reason why I don't want to talk to you is because I kind of look like, uh, you know, a monster. I look like I have the flu in a sauna. So it is, uh, I mean, we, and we could go, we could go on and on and on about gym culture because, because it is, so, there, there are so many fascinating dynamics going on in there in terms of just personal body issues and uh, the beauty myth starts to come in there and these physical ideals and you have sexuality that is inherently tied into the mix and gender and, 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 mm-hmm. and we pay for it. With yeah. our money. With our monies. To go to these places. Yeah, so I guess we should ask people about their gym experiences. Like, what... I, I'd like to hear about people's experiences with the gender spheres in yeah. gyms. And, and do you cross them, or do you feel like you need to stick to one side or the other? Right. And what are what are your interactions there? I mean, are, are there people listening who really prefer to work out just around guys, just around women does it feel are gyms safe spaces i feel like in a lot of ways for a lot of people they are kind of unsafe spaces because it brings out all of these insecurities that we have as we try to shape our bodies yeah i just didn't make eye contact when i went to the gym yeah i kind of want to see you in a gym now you sound like a tough cookie (laughs) well i really i really enjoyed that gym thank you (laughs) augusta Y. I really appreciated it it was a good place (laughs) Um, so I think that's that's all we have to talk about. Like I said, we could go we could go on and on, um, and there are many other topics that we could branch off into. But uh, in the United States, at least, we have Cold War fears to initially thank for for fueling this. Thanks, Russia. <laughs> Come on, 
So uh, send us your thoughts on gyms and working out. Mom's stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. Oh, and if you are working out while you're listening to this episode, good for you. I know a lot of people exercise and listen. Here is a letter from Robert about our Pinterest episode. Kristen, he has a little shout out for you. He says, I would like to nominate one of Kristen's line from the show as the funniest line I have ever heard on your podcast. Quote, I went to Mantristing to see what men are nailing. End quote. Oh, I did say that. I know that was my junior high self coming out and not my mature 48-year-old self, but it was funny. I checked out Mantristing. I would just like to say that as a manly man, if a dude has to go to a, quote, manly pinning site, then he is overcompensating. I am secure enough in my manhood to not only need a Pinterest account, and I will pin anything there that I like. So thank you, Robert. Keep pinning. Keep on pinning, Robert. And visit, just a small little plug, you can visit our our little pin board. Pin board over at Pinterest. Search stuff mom never told you. Uh, I've got an email here from Jolie about our episode on food expiration dates. And she says, I get made fun of constantly at work for eating expired products. Nothing too crazy, although I will drink my milk up to 10 days after the sell-by date. My manager thinks I'm nuts. She's more extreme, though. Uh, I offered her an expired Altoid, and she refused it. But to me, candy never expires. Chocolate is good for years. Even if it starts to get a little white, I might try it if I'm desperate. In the case of the Altoid, though, my boss was right. I found them at my desk over a year old, and they didn't taste like anything. Like sugar, but no mint. I didn't get sick, but it was just the flavor thing that you mentioned, so I thought I would share. Altoids are no good after a while. Also, one time, I misread the date on my milk and poured it into my cereal. It came out normal looking. The cat wasn't interested, and that should have been a tip-off, but I got a spoonful in my mouth and then ran to the sink. I double-check my carton expiration dates now. Oh, expired milk. Hey, let's end this podcast on a soured milk note. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for writing in to momstuffatdiscovery.com. That's where you can send your letters. You can also hit us up on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And follow us on Tumblr as well. We are at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you want to learn more about how to stay fit and healthy and very, very happy, you should head over to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 